Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. Uh, Before we get started, just a quick note. We are sitting in an Airbnb bedroom right now. Sean is holding a microphone between uh, me and Ryan as we record this because we wanted to get this out to you in time. We've been on the road for about a month now sharing our documentary with a bunch of folks. So we're going to share some stuff with you today. Uh, by the way, my name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together we are the Minimalists. And today is finally the day. It's uh, May 24th, 2016. And that means that our first feature-length film, Minimalism, a documentary about the important things, hits uh, hundreds of theaters across the United States starting today. And uh, it will also be in... Canadian theaters starting on June 8th. You can find your closest theater at minimalismfilm.com slash watch. You can also pre-order the film online at theminimalists.com slash order. Uh, Sean will put those links in the show notes for us as well. Oh, and uh, good news. Everyone who attends a sold-out theatrical screening, as well as everyone who pre-orders the documentary on Vimeo, which you'll find via those links, uh, everyone who does that will receive six hours of bonus interviews and additional content. Okay, uh, let's move on to today's episode. Today we're going to share with you a few scenes from Minimalism. But first, Ryan, we should probably talk about why we decided to make this film. Yeah, man. It's uh, really hard for me to believe that it's been six years since we started this website, theminimalists.com. Yeah, since then we have written hundreds of essays on minimalism. We've published three books about intentional living. We've toured all over the place, uh, just bringing our, our simple living message to millions of people across the globe. We even started this thing called a, a podcast, which should be obvious to y'all, of course, because that's what you're listening to right now. Yeah, you see, we are constantly finding new ways to spread the word about minimalism. That's why three years ago we decided to make a documentary. And, you know, we didn't want it to just be the Josh and Ryan show. Now, I know me and Ryan, we are awesome. I mean, just ask us. But seriously, we wanted to make minimalism a a bit more accessible. We wanted to show you all that minimalism isn't a, a radical lifestyle. It's a practical lifestyle. So we and our talented director, Matt Diavella, and the amazing team over at Spire Media, we went out and interviewed dozens of minimalists from all walks of life. We interviewed minimalist families, minimalist entrepreneurs, minimalist architects and artists and writers, environmentalists, and even minimalists from the sustainable fashion industry. We interviewed economists, neuroscientists, neuropsychologists, sociologists, tiny house designers and journalists, and even a former Wall Street broker. And what we discovered is that while all these people lead considerably different lives, they all share one thing in common. They're all striving to live a meaningful life with less. So in this first clip from Minimalism, we hear a bunch of experts discuss some of the problems of modern-day consumerism. Yeah, uh, what you're about to hear is sort of an amalgamation of from a neuroscientist named, I'm sorry, a neuropsychologist named Rick Hansen 
an entrepreneur named Jesse Jacobs, a sustainable fashion consultant named Shannon Whitehead, also a neuroscientist, Sam Harris, an economist named uh, Juliet Shore, an author and technologist, uh, Patrick Rohn, and there's a filmmaker in there. His name is Yaro Kramer. And all of the, these interviews, all these snippets, help us start to outline the mess that we have created in our consumer-driven society. At a time when people in the West are experiencing the best standard of living in history, why is it that at the same time there is such a longing for more? I think of that as a kind of biologically based delusional craving. That auto-craving is a good strategy to keep animals alive, including early human animals, in really harsh conditions. But these days, today, it creates a disconnect. You're like a puppet whose strings are being pulled by Mother Nature and evolution, reaching back tens of millions of years. We still feel restless. We still are always scratching and clawing for more. It's why lottery winners are miserable. It's why homeowners have three-car garages. The first car creates an exponential, awesome rush of happiness and joy and utility. The second car comes about because we tire of the first car. And as humans, we're wired to become dissatisfied. It's an addiction, really. And we are encouraged to maintain the addiction through technology and information. American culture has for the most part, these blinders on. There's definitely this illusion of what our lives should look like, whether it's advertising or your Instagram or Facebook feed. It's this illusion that our lives should be perfect. It's natural to use other people's lives and even imagined lives, you know, the, the confections we see in advertisements as a yardstick. You open Vanity Fair or Esquire, and you see very sexy and glamorous lives. And then the projects, for most people, seems to become, you know, how can I get that or as, as close to that as I'm going to get? There can be an immense amount of dissatisfaction trying to live that way. And many of us see no alternative but to live that way. Advertising has polluted and infiltrated culture. It's in our movies. It's in our television shows. It's in our books. It's in our doctor's offices. It's in the taxi cabs. It's in the bar sitting next to you. The person who you think you're just having an idle chat with could have been placed there by an alcohol company. It's been a slow evolution. This is not something that just happened yesterday. This is something that has been sold to us over, say, the past hundred years, slowly but surely, by those that want to make a lot of money. Now that's what I call a good-looking car. They want us to believe that you really need these things. 
every year that passes, there's more stimuli, there's more pressure, there's more options, there's more media, there's more noise, noise, noise. And by streamlining and simplifying and just letting people know that they have the option, it's that wake-up call that uh, is really valuable in, in, in a very critical time right now. Next, here's a clip from Ryan and me discussing our uh, our troubled childhoods. Now, while Ryan and I aren't, we're certainly not the, the main focus of this film, our story is sort of the, the through line that carries the, the narrative of, of the documentary forward and really creates a narrative for that film. And so it was really important for us to highlight some of our backstory, including uh, some of the, the childhood problems that led us to these these overindulgent 20s that we had you know through our overindulgent lives that we had throughout our 20s you know the time before we were minimalists from the day i was born until the second grade when my parents got divorced i had like the perfect quintessential mom and dad when my mom left my dad she just really went off the deep end by junior high we had a lot of people over at the house and later I found out they were in there smoking crack um, they would cook crack by the eighth grade the SWAT team was kicking in our door busting my mother for selling drugs it was a drug that, that overtook my mother. Josh had a very similar childhood to what I did. My very first memories of my father extinguishing a cigarette on my mother's chest. Shortly after she left my father, she, uh, she started drinking. It was my biggest fear that I was going to get taken away from her. When she was sober, she was a phenomenal mother. I think she kind of felt trapped. My mom always complained about money. She didn't have any money. I remember being poor growing up. And I remember thinking, when I graduate high school, I want to start on a path that is going to take me somewhere other than a struggle. Okay, guys, finally, here's a clip featuring Leo Babalta, a husband and father of six. And there are some additional clips featuring minimalist parents David Freelander and Jacqueline Schmidt, as well as a snippet from an interview with Joshua and Kim Becker, all of whom discuss living as minimalist families. So I've heard someone say... There's another word for minimalism. It's called being a bachelor. <laughs> so that's, yeah, I mean, I can see how people would think, oh, that's really easy if you're not married and you have no kids. How do I set an example of myself being married and having six kids, which is totally unminimalist and very ironic? How do I live a minimalist lifestyle with those kinds of constraints? Jacqueline and I haven't been too prescriptive about, like, no, you have five toys, you know? No, dude, you can only have one truck, you can't have three trucks, you know? It's like, no. When I was a little kid, I didn't have one G.I. Joe, I had, like, 100 G.I. Joes. 
we've welcomed things into our life, but definitely with the intention of thinking um, about what we're doing as opposed to just um, consuming. When you live with other people and you're a family, you can't just make unilateral decisions. Okay, we're now getting rid of everything and throwing the TV out the door. Um, there will be a riot. <laughs> That's a little bit frustrating because you can't just get your way. But it's also a really interesting experiment in how you can move together as a group and learn about this together as a group. At the very beginning, when we decided to live with less, we knew early on that minimalism was just going to look like the way we wanted it to look. I remember going through getting rid of things and finally saying, okay, Salem, let's go through your toys and let's get rid of some of the things you don't need anymore. And he had no problem whatsoever. My daughter is seven and she is very different. She loves every doll that she can get. Like she collects rocks and twigs and anything else she can find, she, she collects and she holds on to. You know, as parents, we get to set some boundaries for her, but ultimately we, we let her choose what she wants. I think he certainly has been at a different level of minimalism than I am. He wanted to get rid of more than I wanted to get rid of, and so there comes the compromise. His side of the closet looks much smaller than my side of the closet, and that's okay with us. You know, I think one of the lessons that, that we've learned through this whole journey is just that our kids are really watching us, and we can tell them that we want them to be certain people, but, man, they're picking up a lot more just from how we, how we live our lives. This is undercurrent of consumerism, removing some of that stuff, provided a, a safe environment where they're able to become what they most want to be rather than what the, the world will try to convince them to be. Okay, that's almost it for, for this week. We, we hope you get a chance to see the film in theaters starting today or order it online at theminimalists.com slash order. And instead of uh, closing this episode out with our normal, beautiful theme song by Peter Doran, uh, what we'd like to do is leave you with a song from the film's soundtrack. But first, let me, let me just talk to you about that soundtrack. So when we started making this documentary about three years ago, uh, well, let me even go back a little bit farther. I had a, a journalist ask me recently during an interview, trying to warm up to me, I, I guess, asking, you know, if you were stuck on a desert island, what's one album you would, you would, what's the one album you want to have with you? And my, the answer that came to me pretty quickly was, an album by a band called Parlor Hawk from Utah, uh, and it's the self-titled second uh, second album of theirs. So it's just called Parlor Hawk, and it's just one of my favorite albums. Parlor Hawk is definitely one of my favorite bands. They have only two albums, and so when we started making this film, I knew that the music for the film would be really important, and so I reached out to the lead singer of of Parlor Hawk and spent about six months sort of begging him. His name's uh, Andrew Kappener, and Eventually, he agreed to do the soundtrack, the entire soundtrack for the film, and he partnered up with a Grammy-nominated producer, a guy named Nate Pfeiffer, 
and they made this, just the most beautiful soundscape that was the, the perfect illustration, the, the perfect backdrop for this film. And, and so what we'd like to do is leave you with, uh, with one of the songs from, from that soundtrack. But if you leave here, if you leave this podcast with one message, as always, we hope it's this. Love people and use things, because the opposite never works. And now here's uh, a song called End of the Line, which is written and performed by uh, a band called We, V-V-E, and that is Andrew Kapaner and Nate Pfeiffer. They formed that band just for this soundtrack. And so if you try to Google them, you're not going to find anything, but that soundtrack will be available really soon on iTunes, and I think they're going to put it on Spotify as well, so you'll be able to look out for that. More details coming on that soon, but I hope you enjoy this song. Oh. Um.